Hey, uh, you guys remember the Obamas? They're those people from slow jamming the news and carpool karaoke. You remember those guys? Well, my guest today still works for one of them, Michelle Obama, and particularly her college access organization, Reach Higher, which, among lots of other initiatives, has made student announcement of college attendance into a viral sensation through their college signing day events. Former U.S. Department of Education official and Reach Higher executive director Eric Waldo is continuing much of the work started under the former president to make sure all families have all the information they need to access college. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Gavin Sweeney, a college counselor at CollegeWise, and this is a podcast where I talk to people who are also interested in helping demystify, unravel, and support the college process, like my guest today, Eric Waldo of Reach Higher. Welcome, all y'all new listeners. Make sure and subscribe to this show in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and rate the show. It means a lot. Okay, so while I don't have a super strong sense of who my listenership is, I have a good feeling that these days most of you could be forgiven for maybe not really even remembering a period of time in our nation during which you weren't waking up filled with dread, wondering what had happened while you slept and spending your days face-palming, head-shaking, and screaming into social media, a pillow, the void, etc. Lots of us who might be able to hearken back to that era have also been wondering, oh man, where are those guys? We miss them, to put it mildly. Well, the good news is that they've been busy, and Michelle Obama in particular, thanks to the hard work of Eric Waldo and the team at Reach Higher. This has been a hard time for those of us who were fans of the previous administration, but you'll hear about how tough it's been for people like Eric, who worked on all the policies that are now being dismantled and scuttled by the DeVos administration. Full disclosure here, my employer, CollegeWise, recently partnered with Reach Hired to get more information for free into the hands of America's families and school counselors and to do what we can to support their college access efforts, as it's something that we at CollegeWise are also highly motivated by. And as Eric mentions in this talk, there is one school counselor for every 482 students, which is almost twice the recommended ratio, which still sounds insanely high, and so there's an enormous need to support those counselors and help their students. Eric and I met up at the annual conference for my profession, the National Association of College Admissions Counseling, or NACAC, which was held in lovely Salt Lake City, Utah, at an elevation of 4,226 feet. And if you're headed to Puerto Rico in the near future, speak Spanish and need a few recommendations on where to get some great food, stick around till the end of our conversation. Eric Waldo, welcome to the uh, room 258 here at the Salt uh, Palace Convention Center. I think we're just immediately adjacent to um, like John Stockton Boulevard. That sounds right. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I think like right out there, it is. It's seriously called John Stockton Boulevard. I, I, this is really my first. I technically came once to Salt Lake City, but was here for like two hours on a, on a school visit when I worked at the Department of Education, and so quick flew in, flew out. So it's been nice to sort of actually like hang out, and, and it's a be- beautiful place. Are you a basketball fan? Uh, I was growing up, so I'm from Cleveland. So okay. uh, I, last year I watched more basketball than I had since I was like 14. Just the, the last season of LeBron James, so mm-hmm. I wanted to, wanted to soak it all up. I'm from uh, Portland, Oregon. Okay, so I know a thing or two about basketball teams not really kind of getting all the way. Yeah. Which now you don't know anything about. Well, as a Clevelander okay. in no... general, in general, mm-hmm. Cleveland has suffered great, great sports losses. LeBron, so you're a big ba- Baker Mayfield fan now, probably. <laughs> this right? Got to run for president. Like, yeah, he yeah. to certainly be governor of Ohio if LeBron well, doesn't want to run. You know, when I was in Portland, I actually got to see the uh, the dream team, the actual dream team play at the tournament of the Americas 
I'm just reminded of this right now because John Stockton like yeah. broke his ankle or something mm-hmm. playing, you know, Canada and beating them by like a thousand points. Yeah. Uh, and I think it kept him out of competitive play for at least a little while. But I see like, you know, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, um, Clyde Drexler, obviously. So, yeah, that, that generation, you know, with the, the Cavs teams of the late 80s and early 90s, like Mark Price, Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, uh, th- those are teams that helped Michael Jordan create all his Gatorade commercials. Uh, you know, hitting a three-pointer over Craig Elo is probably the most iconic one that people no, think of. No, the most iconic thing that people think of is uh, Michael Jordan uh, turning around and shrugging because he just has no no real excuse for how good he is at playing basketball, and and right <laughs> behind him is Cliff Robinson who yeah. just got you destroyed. Know, yes, and yeah. it's like every single amazing basketball highlight is always a blazer getting destroyed. <laughs> and Craigulo, yeah, and Craigulo, yeah. we got we can't we can't take Craig out of at least the top top five. Well, while we're on the topic of like you know the eighties and nineties and stuff, I feel a little bit like you know there's that line in Ghostbusters when all of a sudden they become like really big heroes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to ask you, uh, and how are the Obamas? And have you seen them lately? <laughs> uh, well, the great news is that you know the Obamas have been entering back into the public space in a big way. That is good news. I think it We're is. All, we've all been hoping that would happen. I, I, it's fabulous to see Mrs. Obama out with her When We All Vote campaign. Um, I, I probably this will come out, you know, your listeners will hear this a little later, but she's been out doing rallies, getting people to register to vote. Um, today is a, a Friday. She'll be in Miami today encouraging people to vote. She's been putting out videos with Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tom Hanks and celebrities and stars of all kinds. You know, she did a rally in Pittsburgh. Tom Hanks did a rally in Pittsburgh. Mrs. Obama did one in Las Vegas last week. You know, we know that voting is a critical part of being engaged in the civic space, and it's unfortunate that not enough people have engaged in voting, but we want to change that for, for, for these midterms. So I'm excited to see her out there doing that. Obviously, she's out there talking about her new book, which comes out in November, which she announced. And so, you know, I think, it, as always, I think the Obamas have an incredible personal story. And, you know, as someone who cares about education, um, you know, seeing her as a first-generation college kid, you know, magnet high school from the South Side, parents didn't go to college, seeing her tell that story, I'm excited to get a copy of her book because I know that so much of the work she did uh, during the administration and that she's going to continue to do uh, is grounded in her personal story of you know how education helped her achieve what she wanted to. So I've been really thrilled to see them back out there. It's always good to see President Obama out there on the road too. When I don't know if it was a long speech, but his speech at the University of Illinois, uh, I watched the whole thing and it just made me feel great and inspired me. And I think he... You know, he's a very thoughtful person who takes a lot of time crafting his speeches and how he thinks about things. And it's great to sort of hear his voice again in the public space. Uh, yeah, you can say that again. Uh, <laughs> it's a very calming <laughs> tone and frequency yeah. that we uh, don't really have much of uh, these days. And, um, you know, it's uh, a, a rather, I'll say, inauspicious day on which we find ourselves talking. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're walking around this convention center and there are TVs with the sound cranked up and crowds of about a you know a hundred people at a time, all watching the Senate hearing. Um, and it's and it's really wild. And I wonder what that's like for you as somebody who works so closely with one of the most iconic and powerful women on planet Earth. Well, I'll tell you a few things. Number one, you know, I've I've. I started working for the Obamas back in 2007, actually. Mm-hmm. I was a, I started out as an attorney on President Obama's first campaign, 
And, and I actually, I went to University of Chicago Law School. My first quarter of law school was President Obama's last quarter teaching before he ran for Senate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's someone who I remember when he was going to give the speech in 2004, it wasn't just this, you know, guy who's a rising star. It was our law professor mm-hmm. uh, is going to give the, the speech tonight. Let's let's all tune in. Right. Uh, and so let me say a few things. Number one, uh, one of the first jobs I had on the transition team when we won the election was I was a vetting attorney. Uh, and I was vetting cabinet officials for Senate confirmed positions. And to see what's going on with the Kavanaugh confirmation, to see what's happened with actually so many of the Trump cabinet or appointees, uh, again, just lets you know that these guys are not up to the task, right? They are, are constantly making these mistakes that are just because of lack of preparation, unforced errors, and just stupid political things. Like, you should have had a vetting team and a better FBI background check that would have been able to find all those things. This is public. I'm not sharing any secrets out of school. But during the Obama administration, during the transition, we would uh, ask questions. I, you know, I was asking questions of potential nominees, and it wasn't just the FBI form. It was questions above and beyond that. And there were questions such as, have you ever done anything that if it came to light would embarrass the president? Mm-hmm. Because you have to imagine about you know a, a, a staffer on the other side who's looking to make a name or looking to find something uh, incriminating. And so people were very honest and told you some very personal things, and, and sometimes that meant that that person wasn't going to be able to be a nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get the impression in all of the things that the Trump administration has done, they have had no vetting, zero preparation, and no team. And that's that was the case when you had someone like Secretary DeVos, who had her first confirmation hearing. Uh, and that's now going today to the Kavanaugh hearings, where it just feels like we are, are no one's doing the homework and and it's it's a it's a government run by people who don't believe in government and so maybe they don't think they had to do that uh, for secretary DeVos and you know I've been on the record about this before um, you know I helped prepare former secretary of education Arnie Duncan for his confirmation hearings and I will tell you that he had a, a giant stack of you know he had a briefing books it was piles of books on issues from early learning k-12 higher ed um, debt issues, you name it. I mean, he was an urban superintendent, but he didn't know about the billions of dollars in higher ed loans that you know the federal government was making. He had to be prepared, and it, we prepared, and we had mock, basically mock trial. We, we said, here's what we think we're going to get from this senator and that senator. You know you're going to get a question on special ed from, from you know, Senator Harkin. You know you're going to get a question on teachers from Lamar Alexander. So, again, for someone like Secretary DeVos, when she was so ill-prepared for her confirmation hearing, I couldn't help but think, is this... Um, is this malpractice or did she just not do any preparation? And now, you know, fast forward what we've seen over the past almost two years, and we have a trend of, of both folks who don't believe in government, um, folks who don't want to do the work. And then I think we have these moments, which is the payback or I would say the, the repercussions of that, right? That people didn't do the work. Uh, and you, this came out yesterday in the hearings that actually um, – Dr. Ford had tried to come forward months ago and tried to wave the White House off from this nomination Well, when it was just, you know, his, when, when uh, Judge Kavanaugh was a person listed. So, you know, it, it's disheartening. Every day is disheartening these days yeah, what comes out from the administration. But, um, you know. Well, and when you talk about, you know, Secretary DeVos, that not only do they not believe in, 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 in government, but um, you found, I'm sure, that a lot of these folks don't necessarily even really believe in objective truth. 
And then, well, you know, that objective truth as can be taught in a system of higher education. It, you know, listen, again, we're we're in a really difficult time for our democracy, which is actually why I think it's so important that, that folks like President Obama and Mrs. Obama are encouraging people to vote, right? Um, because if we want our leaders to to behave differently, if we want them to respond to incentives like fact-based arguments around climate change, around education policy, um, around civil rights, uh, around you name it, a host of issues, they have to be able to see that they're going to pay a political consequence. And that means people voting, that means people articulating things. And right now, um, our elected officials don't look like our population. They don't share the views of our population. And that's partly because our population isn't enough engaged in, in, in our daily civic life. So I think that um, you know, this November is going to be uh, is a watershed moment for our country. And President Obama has said this as well. You know, we it, it's not just a, you know important for your civic duty. We are really at the at the precipice of something. I don't know oh. if you listened to um, John Favreau, former uh, President Obama's speechwriter. He, in addition to his regular podcast, the he has, Pod Save America folks. He's one yeah. of the Pod Save guys. Um, maybe the founder. He actually did a, a series, a different style called The Wilderness. Mm-hmm which I, I recommend to folks. It's much more of a produced piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his final episode is about 13 episodes was an interview with President Obama. And you mm-hmm. hear again, you know, his his measured voice talking about that this election is so important because so many of our institutions are being challenged because we can't agree on things like basic truth, objective truth, or people, you know, agreeing to play by even any sense of, 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 of by the rules. And so um, that's, that. this is really important. Yeah. While we're on the topic, uh, let me ask you, so you worked at the Department of Education. Yep. Why do we have a Department of Education? So this is something that, you know, it's interesting because I sort of think, duh. Right. Really, really, really smart friends of mine who will vote Democrat until the day they die, um, have asked that question of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like, why do we have this? I mean, it doesn't, you know, and so how, how do you answer that question? Why do we have the Department of Education? So the Department of Education really started through some of, it technically became a department um, under Jimmy Carter, but it was actually programming that began during the Lyndon Johnson Civil Rights Era, sort of the Great Society program. I'll just remind people that this is, you know, one of the, one of the uh, elements of the federal bureaucracy that finds itself usually at the top of the list of you know uh, places to to you know to chop uh, wholly out of the system mm-hmm. of the federal government. So I, I would take I would actually take two steps back actually. So, so I can I'm happy to provide the history of like when the department started and what we do and why it's important. I still say we as if I worked there. Um, <laughs> you know, eight, eight years of talking points kicked in. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I actually think is really interesting to think about is. Why don't we have a stronger uh, federal department of education? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at other higher performing countries, uh, people who are outperforming us on almost <laughs> any metric, whether that's you know college completion. Right now, we're about 13th among industrialized nations. Um, if you look at sort of how we're doing on on our NAEP scores, if you're looking uh, at how we're doing for comprehensive early learning, um, if you're looking at how we're doing on science and math. Uh, we are not, if you look at how we're doing for making sure that education is actually propelling people outside of their, you know, where they started in the socioeconomic ladder, we are just not doing as well as other countries. And, and what those other higher performing countries tend and to I have. And I heard uh, a lot about this this morning from Nicholas Kristof. Yes, he mentioned some of this at his that keynote. We're 61st in the country in, uh, or in high the world. school, or in the, in the world, of course, in, uh, uh, in high school attendance. Yeah. And again, those numbers aren't that much better if you keep comparing. So again, whether it's Singapore, whether it's South Korea, 
Serbia, whether it's Finland, uh, whether these other countries, they do things dramatically differently. And and we could talk about some of those individual policies, whether it's paying teachers more, recruiting, you know, uh, higher valuation of the importance of education, comprehensive learning, etc. I actually think it was pretty interesting about all those countries is they have much more unified central education systems, right? So we essentially have a very um, uh, disparate and uh, heterogeneous school system, right? We have, for, from a funding perspective, a n about 90% of the funding is state and local, only about 10% is federal. Um, so the rest, you know, when you're worried about why, and again, I'm from Cleveland, so I use Cleveland examples. If you're worried about why Shaker Heights High School is getting so much more money than East Tech High, um, that's because of property taxes. That's because of decisions that are made at the mayoral level, at the at the governor's level, at the state house level. Um, but it, and also we have right now over fourteen thousand school districts in this country, all of whom many you know have different structures of how they're organized. Some are appointed school boards. Some have mayoral control. Some are elected. Um, and this huge heterogeneous environment has led to. You know, people think, oh, it's a thousand flowers blooming. I would argue that it's made it harder to scale success quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I might both agree um, that that you know freshmen in high school need to know X, Y, Z around comprehensive early, early, you know, learning, essay writing, complex thinking, etc. Uh, maybe we'll go different ways about doing it. You know, are you going to teach Catcher in the Rye and maybe I'm going to teach the Odyssey. Someone else is going to teach the Scarlet Letter. Someone else is going to use the Old Man in the Sea. Um, but currently, we let teachers by and large live in their own ecosystem and we don't help them learn from others about what's working well for similarly situated students so that that teacher could learn and get better or quickly figure out, you know, how to scale their success. And because we have those 14,000 school districts, and up until very recently had almost different sets of standards across 50 states, it's been impossible to actually scale rapidly. And I think, and I'm not the first person to say these things, you look at innovation in education and it's startling to the extent that even among high-performing and I think well-resourced schools, they look pretty much the same way schools looked like over a hundred years ago. By and large, a sage at the stage in the front of the room um, and, and students sort of sitting and getting. Some people are now, we're starting to move towards some personalized learning, some, some different pieces, but by and large, education doesn't look that different when you go and stop by a school today than it used to. We don't think of that way for anything else in, in any other industry, right? Whether it's uh, technology, business, law, etc. cetera. Um, smartphones have, completely changed the way we do business. Technology has completely changed the way that, this, that the world works. Things like social media have completely changed the way that uh, we even comprehend news. Mm -hmm. um, and yet education still is this stagnant thing. And I would argue, to take it back to the original question, um, part of that is because we don't have a stronger federal role. Mm -hmm. And if we did, which would again require some courage, I think that um, we could get more funding for education. It shouldn't just be that federal spending is only 10%. Uh, I think we could think about uh, and again, this would require legislation because currently uh, the, the what is no, now known as uh, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the reimagining of No Child Left Behind, which is the reimagining of the 1964 Elementary and Secondary Schools Education Act, um, that law prohibits the creation or endorsement of curriculum. We have said that the federal government is not going to be in the business of telling people you know, what to learn or even national standards. We've gotten a lot of pushback even on states on their own adopting things like the Common Core State Standards. So I think that we have it completely backwards because there's this sort of irrational fear mm -hmm. of, of, of um, some sort of you know mind, you know, brainwashing uh, federal government. But I think the federal government should be investing 
a ton more because education is an investment and not an expense. So we should be investing in comprehensive early learning programs. We should be investing to pay great teachers a lot of money to work in the hardest to serve communities. We should be paying a lot more so that community college at the very least should be free. Mm -hmm. We're seeing so many more states around the country starting things like college promise programs that have, were originally started in states like Tennessee. Um, now it's even happening at the mayoral level where folks like um, the mayor of Stockton uh, are, are doing programs like this. So. I think all of us agree, well, we're at, a, we're at an education convention. Yes. Uh, the people probably at this convention will agree that, that education is one of the best investments we can make. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, right now, our leadership structure and, again, um, the folks who we've elected tend to put education on, on the chopping block. And, you know, we, we opened up talking about what Mrs. Obama is doing on the When We All Vote campaign. Um, you know, I, I worked for Arnie Duncan for about five and a half years at the Department of Education. And Arnie would say this all the time, and he still says it today, uh, the reason some of these decisions are happening, the reason education gets cut, the reason it's not fully funded in, in, around the country, is because we don't make the decision at the ballot box that's going to reward people who are going to invest in education. And if we don't vote for people who are going to invest more in education, we're not going to see anything change. So you know, why isn't education the number one issue that people are thinking about? Um, because I would argue education is the seminal issue around which all other issues flow. It seemed that that was certainly the, 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 the point that Nicholas Kristof was making this morning. I mean, when you talk about the fact that it just all really boils down to a matter of poverty, right? Yeah. And that, and that um, we've been doing absolutely nothing to really address the core concerns there. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. And again, you know, this is the thing, and I love working in the education space, and it's it's really a joy in my life. That being said, I'm fascinated to the extent that there's so much money put into, um, you know, admiring the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we know the problems. We mm -hmm. know where we're underinvested. We know what we have to do to fix those things. And the question is, do we have the political courage to to follow through on, on what the data has told us, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I think about the, the trends around ed reform or education in general, and I, I would say that uh, maybe a generation ago in the ed reform battles, the question was, could we get uh, you know low-income kids, kids of color to graduate from high school? And then we said, yes, we put in some high-performing charters. We had you know some other great schools. Those kids were walking across the stage. And then we said, well, can we get those kids to college? And you know, again, now we've got all the signing day events. We've got the videos of the, of the kids going from Yes Prep to Princeton and doing the incredible things. Uh, and now where we are currently in our education battle is we're saying, are we getting those kids to complete at the same percentage as their upper income peers? Right now, on average, or the national stats are, uh, if you're from the bottom income quartile, you have about a 9% six-year college graduation rate. If you're in the upper income quartile, it's about 73%. So we obviously have to fix that dynamic. We need to make sure that first-gen kids, low-income kids, not only are they going to get to college, we need to support them to complete. And I think that's where I see, and that's where I spend a lot of my time, that's the energy around us trying to figure out how are we giving them the supports that they need when they get onto campus? How are you making campuses more student ready? Um, and again, some of that's around funding. Some of that's around social emotional support. Um, some of that's teaching those young people to navigate uh, a college campus, ask for help, uh, understand that going to office hours isn't a sign of weakness, but mm -hmm. actually a sign mm -hmm. of strength. Uh, I would argue, or, or I will guess, that we will continue to make progress. And actually, we're going to get more of those students. We're going to bump up our numbers. They're going to continue. They're going to continue to do better. They're going to graduate from college or some post-secondary. And then the question will be, are they getting jobs? And then I can, the question one generation later will be, are they getting meaningful jobs and having meaningful lives? Right. Now, again, you know, we can't go pencils down on any of this because education is, is the field like so much where we constantly have to reinvent the wheel or constantly have to you know, plant and sow, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
even though we may have made the FAFSA just a little bit easier during the Obama administration, every you know 17-year-old who, who, who brings up FAFSA.gov and looks at it, still they don't know that it was like 15 pages longer and on paper and this much more difficult mm-hmm. 10 years ago. They just say, like, this is scary. Mm-hmm. I've got to get tax information from my parents. I went to a documentary last night called Personal Statement, and they did an exceptional job telling the story uh, of a young man who, you know, he was living with his sister because his mother was homeless and couldn't take care of him, and he was dinged for FAFSA verification. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he had to figure out how to get his, you know, 1040 tax form from his homeless mother who he doesn't know how to contact all the time. Which, by the way, being selected for FAFSA verification, um, something that uh, Secretary DeVos's administration is, is, have, is, 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 again. And what is what does that mean? Sorry. So to back up, let's not we'll try not to speak in acronyms. Um so FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. Folks, yes. folks may not know this, but actually, the, people would like to put like to believe. I think that both of those F's belong, you know, mean a different word. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's FAFSA, and then when you, you and, and again, FAFSA also the federal government makes around. It's a, not FAFSA. It's FAFSA. The other funny thing when we did we did an announce at probably the, it was it must have been fall of 2016. We did an announcement around another sort of FAFSA simplification, and we were trying to think of something fun and digital because again, FAFSA tough uh, and. <laughs> We we had a, a little thing. We did like a five time uh, FAFSA five times fast. People saying FAFSA, 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 FAFSA. <laughs> so I think we had like President Obama, Joe Biden, Mrs. Obama, Dr. Biden, all these celebrities of people saying FAFSA, FAFSA, FAFSA. Man, you remember when it when like it, um, the the presidency was fun? I do. I do. do. Right? I do. It was. I can. I'm, I'm old enough to <laughs> hearken back to those. Yeah, you know, they were doing like Snapchat videos. Yeah. So, so again, what the hell is going on? Is, these are tough times. Yeah, so we, yeah. we live in interesting times. But to take it back to the FAFSA piece, so FAFSA free application for federal student aid. Federal government makes 150 billion dollars available in federal student aid. Mm-hmm. So you got to fill out the FAFSA to get access to that, and and that's the way to get not just possibly a maximum Pell, which is going to be more than five thousand uh, dollars, but other sort of federal grants and loans. Now, actually, if you talk to folks from the Texas Chamber of Commerce, they did a study. They were trying to get more Hispanic students to enroll uh, in college, more low-income students. And they did a study that basically showed that the one intervention that led to the highest ROI was about like seven to one. Um, and we, when we came in, we began doing things like FAFSA simplification. So we began using autofill. We worked with the IRS so that you could automatically transfer your FAFSA data. We began making it a little easier so you didn't have to wait till the spring to do it. We did something. This is the most technical detail term ever, but prior, prior. So you could use not, you don't have to wait till the spring to add your taxes. You can do the, the previous year's taxes. Big deal. Big deal. Um, made it online, again, using, you know, smart autofill. Um, so we knew we were cutting down the time and the length and all these things. We were saying you could fill it out in about 24 minutes or so. It's almost like you did research to sort of see like what maybe the barriers were to entry and, and you know, and then you actually address it from like a um, sort of a thoughtful like policy standpoint. This is the thing that I think people... Am, I mean, am I... You were... Is that uh, sort of that is the a, attack you took? Yes. Yeah, so okay. I, people may not know this because huh. there's such a cynical view of DC today, which is currently well-earned. I'm not... <laughs> But what I'll tell you is, believe it or not, and this is the tough thing when you hear people sort of slam the federal government, federal workers. You know, I worked at the Department of Education. Over 3,000 employees worked there. These are some of the smartest, hardest working people I know who actually got into federal service because they want to make the world better. Mm -hmm. And yeah, working in the federal government, you work with committed 
uh, you know, uh, government officials and, 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 and public servants who said, yeah, I've studied this for a long time and here's what I think we could do to fix it. And we'd still, even when we had ideas internally, we'd, we would talk to congressmen, we'd talk to nonprofits, we'd talk to foundations, we'd talk to thought leaders and say, how do we think we can fix this? Uh, and yes, and after and people have different ideas and different interests. And yes, after talking to all those people and then working with other agencies, we, we made some improvements. And I don't think there are plenty of people who said this wasn't enough, right? Uh, but we said it's a little better. And if, again, if you listen to President Obama's speech at um, at University of Illinois, if you listen to his podcast with John Favreau for the Wilderness, you know he says this, and I'm going to do my, my my terrible President Obama imp- impression. But you know he said much of the consternation of his staff. He said, you know. Better, better is good. You know, like I don't believe until Sasha is better. Yeah. And look, we made better than worse. Yeah, we made the FAFSA better, and that's good. Uh, and but again, to take it back to our current kids, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Eh, not bad. Uh, we'll see. My yeah. wife does think it's very good. Okay. Uh, but it's okay. She'll, she'll get it. She'll, she'll one day come out. She's a huge fan of this podcast. So obviously, like, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. She's, yeah she, there's going to be a lot of trolling now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the. We made it easier. We made it a little bit better. Today, though, uh, I always say, number one, you're a 17-year-old. You see the FAFSA for the first time. It's still really scary. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you made that roller coaster a lot safer, it still looks really tall. <laughs> and so now, student, you know, when, when, when the Trump administration came into power, um, we now have gotten reports uh, that the that Secretary Voss's administration that FAFSA verifications have gone up in what seems like a pretty alarmingly so high hear, rate. Yeah, so I hear FAFSA verification. I sort of think like you get it audited on your taxes. In many ways, it's kind of like the, it, it's a similar. It, it feels that way, right? So basically, a student fills out the FAFSA. They basically are giving or they're providing tax data. Uh, they're basically saying I'm poor enough. Uh, to qualify to get this Pell Grant or, or, or this money. And again, I would, you know, counselors, um, college admissions folks know that, especially for first-gen and vulnerable kids, that can be really trying. I talked about the student from the documentary who had to track down his homeless mother to find her tax form that she didn't have and then find a way to contact her, find a way, you know, get her to get in line at a, a, an IRS place to get the form because she didn't have it. I mean, it's a stressful and trying experience even in the best of circumstances but you have many students who say well i don't have you know i've i don't have a relationship with my parents or i've run away or if if you're in a difficult situation as a young person um getting this sort of bureaucratic answer of i need xyz is is pretty difficult and so when you get that verification form essentially says i need more information i to prove to me again you've already got their tax forms because what they're doing is they're saying you know we want to prove that people aren't you know that, that the poor people in particular are not you know fleecing the government by you know taking uh taking handouts yeah. that are unearned. Yeah. This is their yeah. philosophy. I mean, I, I, presumably, I would just say, you know, number one, I think, and this is, again, you know, thinking and putting on the policy wonk side, uh, you know, folks like Cass Sunstein, you know, who, who ran, um, you know, OIRA at the White House um, and who helps do regulations. He's a law professor uh, from Harvard, a very famous, thought, thoughtful guy on this world. He's like, he's a super, yeah, you can know. All right. So Cass has written all these things about, um, you know, in policies, so much of the, what we think of as the default choice has huge public policy implications, right? And this is an example of that, right? We mm-hmm. could make the default that everyone's going to get 
or you know, if you if you call, we we already have some of the information. Like, are you do you qualify for food stamps already? Like, if you do, then maybe you should automatically get five thousand dollars. Like, why we we we're we're adding an additional burden, and then when we add an additional burden on top of that, we are of course going to make it less likely that those students take advantage of that. And again, I would argue from a policy perspective that is a bad investment for us as Americans, as 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 leaders, as as thinkers, because actually what we know is if those young people get a post secondary education, especially a four year degree they're going to earn a million more dollars over their lifetime. Yep. Um, we have research from you know Columbia and Harvard economists showing the long-term effects. Doug Weber, Temple University. Yep. Episode 18. Oh, man. Well, you're crushing it. Uh, I will just, go. That's, what it's, it's, that's what it's called. <laughs> Good job. See? On brand. Man, on brand, guys. Nice work. Um, so again, you know, we know we know that the value of college isn't just because we want this person to be self fulfilled, even though college can lead to that. It's they're going to have so much better life outcomes. They're going to get a better job. They're going to have better health outcomes. They're going to have you know better civics outcomes, better meaningful outcomes. And again, you know, to take it back to an earlier piece. Um, Making that investment is also, we have to compare it to what's the alternative. And I think that that's so much of what we, I think, don't understand when we make these decisions about, well, how much does it cost? Uh, as if it's sort of either we're going to pay this money or we don't, or we get to keep it. Uh, when we don't invest in young people, especially at-risk communities, uh, we're going to end up paying much more money on the back end in things like prison and crime and other things. And when I worked in the Obama administration, uh, one of the things that President Obama proposed at a State of the Union was a comprehensive early learning program, uh, basically $75 billion. Um, uh, comprehensive pre-K program. We again are one of the few industrialized, you know, high, most high-performing economies that doesn't have comprehensive universal early learning, universal mm -hmm. pre-K. And again, you, you talk to uh, James Heckman, Nobel Prize-winning economist from the University of Chicago. He says that high-quality early learning is the best investment you can make. It's a seven-to-one return on investment. Um, you know, there's the best, some of the best public policy studies that are longitudinal, the Perry Preschool Project, show that folks who had high-quality early learning see humongous benefits over their entire lifetime, right? Because we know folks will show up to uh, kindergarten with a 30 million word gap. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's a group called Mission Readiness, which is a group of retired four-star generals, and they have co come out for comprehensive early learning because they view it as a national security issue. Mm -hmm. Because right now, we don't have enough people who are 18 who are even qualified to enter the military because of either health issues, academic issues, um, drug or, or incarceration issues, and they believe early learning and high-quality early learning is the investment we can make to put those students on a path where they could even enter the military, where they would have the, the intellectual wherewithal, they would have the physical wherewithal, and, and these other societal benefits. So when, when Arnie uh, was, was pushing this program and this proposal in front of Congress, he went on the road with Secretary Sebelius, and they would do these town halls around the country and we would do a town hall with you know Arnie Secretary Sebelius usually Health and Human Services yes yes he was the Secretary of Health and Human Services so we would have co-administered this grant so Arnie Secretary Sebelius we would have usually a CEO of like a fortune 500 company in a community like a faith leader and someone usually from either um, the law enforcement community you might have a, um, an attorney general you might have a police uh, chief etc and, and sometimes also a faith-based leader. Mm -hmm. And the fascinating thing was all of them, and they might have come from different political stripes, would say, we need comprehensive early learning. We need high-quality early learning because this is going to change the outcomes for our community. And the, the most striking thing I ever heard in one of those panels, and, and other people have spoke more eloquently about the prisons of pipeline than I have, uh, is folks talked about that they make decisions about prison expansion based on third grade reading and dropout uh, outcomes. So we're 
determining how many more prisons to build based on what's happening in the third grade with young people. That's fucking nuts. It is, as you say, fucking nuts. So, and, you know, again, people will talk about it. We're spending, we'll spend $50,000 a year to incarcerate someone, but we won't spend the 5000 to give them a Pell Grant or the the 10000 to give them a high-quality early learning program. Do you think that one of the problems, you know, was that, like, Arnie Duncan maybe didn't have any yachts? <laughs> uh, let alone a whole bunch of them? Well, can I just tell I you? Mean, because, you, I mean... <laughs> We yeah we you we, hand we, people too much early in life. I, uh, how are they ever you know? I mean, what's I'll, left to aspire to? I'll tell you, and this is a true story because uh, I traveled around the world in planes, trains, and automobiles with Arnie, and you know he is again a really exceptional leader who has spent his entire life. He just has a book out called um, How Schools Work, uh, which again I really recommend folks check out. Um, but he spent his entire life, literally since he was born, in education because he, he grew up in his mom's after-school program starting in a church basement on the south side of Chicago teaching you know poor kids on the south side how, how to read. And it was a kids teaching kids program. And so he saw the effects of, of systemic crime, of violence, of kids who didn't have parents in their lives but who had just as much intelligence but just didn't have the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, you know, has forged who he is where he said it's not fair that, that we're not – Distributing opportunity equitably, um, but on the travel side, Arnie is you know six foot five. I think played professional basketball in Australia, and we you know we traveled commercially everywhere. We would we traveled in coach, mm-hmm. and you know I saw Arnie. You know he's like, had long legs, and he'd switch out his even if he was in the the, the the aisle. You know if someone someone needed a seat, you know he was happy to jump and and, and change seats. And uh, it's too bad that that this current administration. Um, seems to continue to shield themselves away from the ordinary public, whether it's private jet travel from someone like Secretary Pruitt, uh, you know, literally building a noise-proof uh, office. I mean, things that just are, are bananas. And um, you know, it, it's again, we're we're witnessing the the. the You've crumb- got to be comfortable if you're going to govern, man. I mean, you know, you got to okay, so you got to be able to sit on like really nice, you know, handmade chairs, you know. This, this is this, this is what we're learning here. Okay, we're just we're a little behind. I, again, this is where I think it's crazy to me what's happening. Uh, believe it or not, every agency in the federal government has something called a designated agency ethics official, affectionately known as a DEO, um, and. Those are again great civil servants. They're attorneys. Mm. They work with the um, you know with a, with a centralized ethics council, and, and they've all been replaced by pod people. Well, I think they've all been just overruled, or maybe people just don't call them. I think they're they're just being flatly ignored, right? <laughs> they're because, all in the basement with that guy from Office Space. Yeah, they might be because I will tell you, you know, and I, I think that in general, you know, this may be a party issue, but I do think. You know, certainly our office. You know, we 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 were a group of rule followers, uh, and we would I would call our former agency ethics official. Her name was Susan Winchell. She actually was retired, but she was a fabulous person, a fabulous lawyer. And you know, Susan was my first phone call for almost anything. I say, Susan, we're going to do this with this group. They're coming in. Is that okay? You know, we had very specific ethics restrictions that you, trainings you had to take every six months, and it was as simple as you know the twenty dollar limit of what you could take. Or you know, when we had the Recovery Act, we couldn't meet with people who were going to be applying for that money because you didn't want to an appearance of impropriety but literally like we couldn't offer like water at, at events because like we didn't have money to pay for like literally bottles of water uh when people come meet with us that's how sort of mm-hmm. you know rule following we were so it's it always seems insane to me same to, now to same s- <laughs> totally same to well look we, we, we've done a lot of you know triggered lib whining about the past but i'm really interested in you know the present and future yep specifically as pertains to retire sure 
full uh, disclosure to everybody listening. College-wise, my employer, retire partners in not crime, in education, in helping uh, kids get education uh, at the highest levels, get information that's going to help them get there. But give us a little sense of what's what is what's retired do. What are you what yeah. are you you know what are your sort of tentpole items that you guys uh, are working on, and, and and what do we have to look forward to? So for retire, um, number one, it's an initiative that started out of the Obama administration. We started it in 2014 with Mrs. Obama. Um, it was one of her four signature initiatives that she started during her time in the administration. Retire began at the White House, but really it started with a conversation with Mrs. Obama after President Obama was reelected in 2012. And you know, in the first term she worked on her Let's Move initiative to end childhood obesity, and she was working on her Joining Forces initiative with Dr. Biden to work with military-connected families. And when President Obama won re-election, she and her team came to us at the Department of Ed, where I still was, and said, hey, you know, Mrs. Obama's thinking about working in education. She's really passionate about this. Will you help us think about this? And so I began leading a team that was sort of workshopping ideas for them. And we actually spent about a year, you know, coming up with proposals and pitching them and going back and forth. And Mrs. Obama is a very deliberate, thoughtful person. And um, and we thought, gosh, if she took on early learning, like that would have been incredible. If she became an ambassador for recruiting teachers, that would have been incredible. Uh, but what became clear that she really galvanized and, and, and really felt um, connected to was this issue of college access and success. And President Obama in his very first speech around education. Which, by the way, I want to kind of define terms. So we say access and success. Access means getting in. Yep. Success means getting completing, out yeah. successfully. Yeah, it means completing with a terminal degree. And so when President Obama first um, gave he, his very first speech on education, which again, he's, he's a pretty good speechwriter, a pretty thoughtful guy, uh, and has a great team of speechwriters. He spoke to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in, I think, April of 2009. And it was his first speech about education. Can you do Obama but in Spanish? Um, That's, I, I si se puede. <laughs> si, se puede. Um, that was a, my first try, guys. That was really good. Um, so I, he laid out his pillar, actually, of all the work that we did. And he, we sort of talked about it as Kratos' career. And President Obama said at the time, you know, we used to lead the world in terms of the proportion of young people with a college degree. I think when he gave that speech in 2018, we were maybe like 18th or something. And he said, if we want to lead the world again, we need to uh, we need to be number one. We need to be number one in terms of college completion. And when we define college, we do mean a two-year degree. We mean a four-year degree. We mean a community college. We mean an industry-recognized certificate or credential. But some education past high school. And so when we were talking to Mrs. Obama, she said, you know, that's, I, I like that goal, um, and that speaks to me. And that's because she herself is a first-generation college grad. Uh, she, you know, she grew up on the south side of Chicago, went to a magnet high school, Whitney Young, uh, but neither of her parents went to college. And she saw the difference that it made in her life to go, and that ultimately changed her life trajectory. But she knows there were so many other young people in her life who had her same talents but didn't get that same opportunity. And so she said, look – how can I inspire more young people to see themselves as college material, to build a college-going culture, and ultimately move a needle in a meaningful way? And I think what you saw with this work, and again, I used to describe Mrs. Obama as the school counselor-in-chief for the entire country. Uh, and in that effort, right, we were talking about things, and we continue to, around you know, college and career exposure. If you grew up in a family, in a school, in a community where going to college isn't the expectation, you actually have to make sure we're exposing students to college, right? Bringing them to college campuses, having them meet people who've gone to college, seeing a connection between your education and college. Um, We talk about the financial aid and college affordability side, right? Uh, We spent a lot of time talking about the FAFSA, but we did think 
there are so many people who don't know that there's money for them for college, especially because of the increased senior middle class anxiety about the cost of college. That trickles down where people say, oh, they see the price tag of college and think that's that's not for me. I could never afford that. So I, I won't even put it in my brain. And that you know has real effects on people's aspirations. So we want people to know there is money for them. I mentioned that $150 billion in federal student aid. Um, and again, I you know when, when, when I used to travel around the country with Arnie Duncan, we would do kind of like prices right rules where we'd ask kids, how much money do you think the federal government makes available? And like kids would guess, guess. You, occasionally they'd say like a couple million, right? And they would never guess billions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's money there. And again, probably really educated people wouldn't guess. <laughs> they wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. Look at the state of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we talked about careers, college and career exposure, financial aid and college affordability. We still talked a lot about academic readiness. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, anywhere between 15 and 40% of entering public college freshmen have to take remedial classes. Mm-hmm. The number one offered course uh, in college is for freshmen is, is algebra. Um, even for the kids who do all the right things, they apply to college, they get in, they show up. All too often, they're taking remedial classes. And that can be really frustrating, right? You show up to college on day one, uh, you find out you're not up to the level. And so you're ta- using those scarce grants and loans just to get up to speed. So we did a lot of partnerships and we continue to work with folks on making sure that people are taking college ready material in high school right so that means dual enrollment AP classes early college high school again for our most vulnerable kids we want to make sure they're taking a vigorous uh, and, and college prep material there was a report that came out this week from I think TNTP it's called the opportunity myth again talking about the fact that it's some horrible number I, I don't think I'll get it completely right but something like 40% of courses offered in high school for bottom-income core health students we're not at grade level. We're not college preparatory material. So if you're not getting even exposed, you know, if those kids, if they're told you're doing fine because you're attending or because you're not causing trouble, we aren't we aren't setting them up for success in college or in life. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, uh, you know, we talked a lot about school counselors, and you 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 probably know this is that on average you've got a one counselor for every um, 482 students. It's about twice the recommended ratio. It's one for every 250 is what uh, the American School Counselor Association recommends. And it obviously gets really, really lopsided depending on the state, too. Yeah, Arizona. California is yeah. 800 or 1,000 yeah. or something. Yeah, it used to be 1,000. I think it's down to like yeah, 800 or something. In Arizona, I think it's one for one counselor for every 900 kids. I, I just want to say, number one, even in the best case scenario in that world, or like the average, right? Like, oh, it's one for 250. That seems bonkers to me. Yes. Um, and again, you know, part of this whole conversation around equity and, and higher ed is about the fact that we know that no one this is not a level playing field this is not on the level because we know that the the fancy schools pick your prep school and you know again I'm, I'm from Cleveland Ohio so you know whether it's the fancy public school like Shaker Heights or Chagrin Falls or if it's an elite school an elite private school those students are getting an entirely different ratio and frank and frankly are also on the side getting their own uh, you know uh, co- college counselors who are helping them in the process so mm-hmm. it's just not on the level um, so we began elevating the school counselor profession. Uh, we invited the school counselors to come to the White House. We actually hosted about five different summits around the country to work on pre-service and in-service training for counselors. We're about 3,000 counselors uh, who serve over a million students. And we hosted and began hosting and celebrating the School Counselor of the Year ceremony at the White House, which was symbolic. Uh, usually we'd have policy analysis around it, but I actually think it's really important in terms of, and we're seeing this so much in our current society, you know, what we choose to recognize, what we choose to honor, I think really matters. And I think with the highest office of the land, it matters even more. And what we discovered was, while previous administrations had always honored the school teacher of the year for the past 50 years or so, with the Rose Garden ceremony, with president, fancy, 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 no one had ever invited the school counselor of the year to the White House. 
And so Mrs. Obama gave a speech to the American School Counselor Association and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start this tradition. And so she began doing that um, uh, starting in 2015. Her final official speech as First Lady was at the American School Counselor of the Year event. She's continued to honor them since she's left the White House. And we work really closely with school counseling communities around the country. We have about 42 state reach higher teams. Um, they're working to help improve pre-service and in-service training for counselors who oftentimes actually don't even get a class in how to do college prep for kids. Mm -hmm. We ask counselors to do so much. Uh, we're asking them to do mental health. We're asking them to do you know, the, the psychological piece. We're asking them to do now emergency training. If you think about every time. Yeah, they're uh, being asked to resolve all of the problems that the kids are bringing yeah. to them, you know, coming from home. I mean, the, 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 yeah, it's a really, really uh, impossible job. And, and Never I think, mind maybe having some time left over to talk to them about college. Right, and and I think uh, again we need to we we do need to give schools more support, whether that's school psychologists and school counselors and crisis counselors and etc. Uh, but we but college counseling has to be part of that. There ha that that has to be a priority as well. But again, with all these school shootings and other things, I think we're spending more time thinking about how to you know add bulletproof vests and security guards to schools than than social workers and school counselors. Um, Arnie Duncan actually tells a story about a school in a, a tough neighborhood in Chicago in Lawndale and that he, the principal asked for some flexibility to instead of add more security guards to add more school counselors and he gave him that flexibility and that school saw incredible improvements. Hmm. Um, so anyway you know that's the, the the core of what we do is around college access to success building a college going movement because I think right now we're in this era where we're, we're again fighting with people about the value of college mm -hmm. and you and I know and I hope your listeners know that this is not some sort of secret we know higher education is a necessary thing and we know the value of it and even if it requires some financial investment if you're going to a good school if you've done your homework that is going to work out for you in the long run is, is the best investment you can make in yourself mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that Ms. Obama I think understands deeply is around how to build cultural movements I think you know you saw it in Let's Move where of course we need to change the food pyramid and we need better labels and all these things around um, health and food policy, but it was just as important that we get young people excited about building gardens and exercising. And then when you have Will Ferrell and Jimmy Fallon doing push-ups on TV or Ellen or, you know, making these skits, that's getting in the minds of young people. And so we took that same mentality for Reach Higher. And so, you know, it, it may seem crazy, but we... Uh, uh, we had Mrs. Obama do a rap video with college humor called Go to College, and she rapped about going to college with Saturday Night Live's Jay Farrow. And that video like went viral in 24 hours, and you know it had 23 million views in like the first day, and literally led to a, a spontaneous hashtag of hashtag Flotus Bars, where you would see the picture of Mrs. Obama in front of the mic that was in the video of her rapping, and people putting their own rap lyrics about college or about <laughs> life. And I knew we like had a big moment when suddenly. Um, in my Twitter, my tweet deck feed, there were uh, tweets about it from like in in Italian from like Italian Rolling Stone, <laughs> like, like the, the Italian reporters are like, "All right, guys, we've made it." Um, oh, but you know that's an example. But so much of what we do is culture building, and so we one of the traditions we started uh, or that we helped build, uh, we launched Reach Hire at a college signing day in San Antonio, Texas. And college signing day is building on the sports signing day. Sports signing day is, you know, sometime in January, February, the high school seniors who are going to go play college basketball, football, baseball. They put on a hat, I'm going to play, you know, basketball at Ohio State. And it gets a lot of fanfare uh, in, 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 in the news and at schools. And some counselors and students in schools said, you know, we should be honoring kids making their college choice in that same way. And May 1st being the deadline to let colleges know where you want to go. Um, schools began using that to have a college signing day rally where kids would like hoist up their 
undershirt and big be a big pep rally. Um, Arnie Duncan went to one at Yes Prep in Texas, probably back in like 2010 or so. And it's still one of the craziest things I've ever seen. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, and we wanted to bring Mrs. Obama to one of those. So we launched Reach Higher at a, a college signing day event in San Antonio. In San Antonio, the entire school, so her city has something they call Catholic College. That whole week leading up to signing day, they're talking about college with preschool kids, with middle school kids, with high school kids, with parents who want to go back. And on college signing day, all the seniors come to a rally. They all put on the college gear of where they're going to go. And every adult in the community wears the shirt of where they went. Maybe it's where their neighbor went or where their nephew or, or their niece goes. Uh, it doesn't. If you didn't go to college, it doesn't mean you can't celebrate college signing day. But they all put on their college gear. And so Mrs. Obama put on her Princeton shirt, uh, showed up, and, and talked. And went to this rally, and we actually had the entire White House put on their college gear, the entire administration. And suddenly, we were asking celebrities, you know, show, tell us where you went, give us some love, and and that's how college signing began trending. And we had so much fun that year that we began asking communities to do it, and we began creating toolkits and measuring it. Mm-hmm. We went from a couple dozen in 2014 to every year getting from a couple 600 the year after, or 1,200 the year after. This past spring in 2018, we had 2,000 events in all 50 states. Over 600,000 students participate in a college signing day. And now again, talk about building a movement, talking about reaching young people today. You and I know that you know Gen Z, these current cohort of, of high school kids, they're on their mobile devices. They have you know seven second attention spans. They want to see something authentic. Um, and we began saying, we're gonna keep, make college signing day a big deal online and also get digital influencers. So this past year, Mrs. Obama participated for her signing day at a 7,000 person rally in Philly. We had over 40 celebrities, including traditional famous people like Zendaya and Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro. But we had digital stars who you may know, but there's a guy named Ninja who is famous for playing Fortnite on Twitch. He and all these other stars who are famous, again, for playing video games, they came out on stage in their college year and they probably had more cheers than the traditional, than Bradley Cooper, right? And and again, my my eleven year old nephew, like he didn't care that I like did that event with Miss Obama. He cared that I knew Ninja. <laughs> uh, but again, we're trying to build that moment because on signing day, when you suddenly see all those selfies of people in their college gear, we had one point two four billion hashtag impressions in 24 hours on college signing day so if you're sad and you need to get happy more than i've ever had yeah if you if you look online if you're sad if you want to go go look at hashtag college signing day and you will just see pictures of kids that day in their gear telling their story it's the new cat video exactly and that day (laughs) but i'm serious like that day you're just overwhelmed and and those billions of impressions the reason that matters is because we know that's where young people are Mm -hmm. And so when it's not just the seniors who are seeing that video, right? It's the juniors, it's the sophomores. It's Does college signing day happen on the same day every year. So May first is the deadline. Right, it's right. traditionally when we celebrate. Uh, when we do when May first being the sort of nationally recognized uh, deadline by which students need to submit their enrollment deposit. One hundred percent. And so what will happen is we we actually we give out about one hundred thousand dollars a year to schools and microgrants to support to host signing days. We we do a whole kit. You can usually go to um, bettermakeroom.org, which is our um, which is our partner youth. Engagement campaign, which usually has uh, the college signing day toolkit. Um, but what, what happens is schools will host them as early as late April through mm-hmm. the beginning of June, just based on like when they can get the auditorium, when it doesn't come up to the so test everybody day. Everybody put it on your calendars. Um, 
you've got a solid week of some really good digital content. It's it's incredible. And, and again, science, that's one example, right? But we got to build that culture. We have to build that demand. And you know, Mrs. Obama said we need to celebrate going to college the same way we celebrate the Super Bowl. And so we're still out doing that. Mrs. Obama's our board chair now that we've left the White House, so she still does about three to five events with us a year. You know, we we do things like signing day to build that college going culture. We. Um, you know, we actually text with about 120,000 students in all 50 states, giving these little like micro nudges. It's based mm-hmm. on the research of Ben Castleman and Lindsay Page from the University of Virginia in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and these students who get these nudges from a counselor or a near peer mentor, it increases the likelihood that they're going to fill out that FAFSA, that they're going to apply to college, that they're going to show up to college by about 10, 11, 12 percent. So not just statistically significant, but like a pretty big deal. Uh, we actually just got some money from the Mellon Foundation. We're going to begin tex- texting with 150,000 more students this next school year. So, you know, we're out there trying to do this work. We also um, do a lot of work celebrating first-gen students who are transitioning to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know we talked about the summer melt statistics um, where some students, you know, around, I think... It, First-gen kids, you know, around 30%, even though if they get into college, they will not show up to day one. And that's because during that summer, they left their high school support system. They haven't entered their college support system yet. And they get that letter in the mail with the additional housing fee or the, you know, transportation fee or something that they didn't know or don't know how to navigate. And oftentimes, they just give up. Because like, well, I don't, I don't have five hundred dollars, or I don't have fifty dollars, or I can't get there. I guess, I guess I'm not going to college. And they, they don't, maybe they don't have their counselor anymore, and they don't, don't know that they can just go to the financial aid office and, and maybe they can waive it or do something else. These text messages make that difference. But then also, we host an event every summer called our Beating the Odds Summit, where we take first gen kids and we try to give them an orientation to let them know how to ask for help, how to get resources, and how to show up and be confident when they show up to a college campus and navigate that experience. Um, it's really good work that you guys are doing. Obviously, um, you're not just trying to do it, you're doing it. Um, and a lot of people, I think, have got uh, the capacity to follow along, to watch what you guys are doing online, elsewhere. Yeah, follow but, us uh, at, at Better Make Room, at Reach Higher on Twitter. Um, also, additionally, this is a, a history-making conversation for me. It's my first uh, podcast with a podcaster. Uh, Eric has uh, a very good education podcast called Swamped. Yes, Follow us at, at Swamp. Tune in. Subscribe. Like swamp Ed, right? Yes. The Swamp. Yeah. DC Swamp. Yes. Yeah, three, 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 three former Obama officials talking about uh, education from the Swampland. It's really good. I listened to your uh, several episodes, but I listened to the one on Puerto Rico. It's one that I've got um, uh, an episode on as well. I talked to a chronicle of higher ed uh, reporter who went down to the University of Puerto Rico. Um, yo tengo familia en Puerto Rico. Así yo también. Yo, así que sí, puedo hablar. Yo, eh, yo entendí que eres de Cagua. Sí, mi madre nací en Cagua. Y de ahí es mi esposa. De verdad. Así que lo que tengo que pre- preguntarte es que, cuál es tu chinchorro <risa> preferido. Mira. De Cagua. De, de Cagua, en Cagua había un sitio que se llamaba uh, Los Panchos. Ok. Y ahí tenía el mejor medianoche de toda la isla. No, eso es, eso, eso es la verdad. Y yo, yo tengo que. Um, este, yo tengo un problema con eso porque la verdad es que el mejor medianoche está en Génesis, en la avenida Esmeralda. ¿En? ¿Dónde? Uh, Guaynabo. Pues vamos Pero en Caguas de, eso. Pues, debemos reunir ahí okay. y podemos hacer wow. nuestro nuevo podcast ahí. Y después a, a Cantinflas, eso es mi, mi preferido. Bien. Todo, todo. Parece que tú has ido a donde, ahí al, al lado de... Um, ¿Cómo se llama? President Obama se fue ahí, ahí para comer un medianoche también. No me cuando acuerdo. él se fue, está en Ocean Park. 
lo olvido, te, te, te digo más tarde, pero ahí también tengo un... Mándame un mensaje y yo sí. lo pongo para los que están escuchando, para que sepan, para sí, que vayan. Sí. Para que sepan que Defin todos tienen que ir a regresar a la isla. Definitivamente, a la isla yeah. no, nos hace falta. Ok, so everybody just, you know, kind of go back, learn how to speak Spanish, and you'll get all that stuff. Yeah, um, practice. But, uh, and, then, and then learn how to speak uh, Puerto Rican. But uh, it's really great work you're doing. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, stay in touch. Yeah. And uh, we'll stay in touch, uh, and we'll make sure that everybody knows what you're doing. Cool. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Appreciate right. it. Cheers. Awesome talk, punctuated by one of the more solid high fives I've gotten to finish an interview. Thanks to Eric for taking the time. And let me just mention here that just a day or so prior to our conversation, Reach Hire was in fact acquired by the Common Application organization, which is really big news from the standpoint of college access, because before we can get more students to participate in Reach Higher Signing Day, enroll in that college, pick majors, attend classes, develop a network, graduate on time, and then to carve out a great life for themselves after graduation, they have to apply. CollegeWise is proud to put out a free guide to completing the Common Application, which we co-branded this year with Reach Higher, so it'll be great to see the successes that this new partnership creates for students. Eric seemed really happy during our talk. Maybe it was the lack of oxygen due to the altitude in Salt Lake City, but I imagine you've got to have a certain degree of indefatigability of spirit to work in politics, given how hard it is to move the needle on the things you care about. But yeah, I feel for the guy, and lots of people like him who are doing such important work to help more kids get a higher education and make informed choices in the pursuit of that education. For instance, while it was kind of flawed, the Obama administration produced an excellent resource for families and anyone who wanted to take a look called The College Scorecard. This is a website that relies on publicly available data to produce a snapshot of important college data that might be pertinent to families as they search for schools, specifically about paying for college. And one of the things that makes choosing a college hard is that there's really not a central repository for easily digestible and trustworthy information to aid you in your quest. They sought to change this by creating the scorecard, but recently we learned that the DeVos administration has changed it so that much of the context is removed from key metrics on net price, graduation rates, loan repayment rates, and typical earnings. So what you don't have anymore is a sense of whether an individual college's net price, graduation rate, loan repayment rate, and earnings after graduation are good or bad because you have no averages to mark them against. That's what they got rid of. Claire McCann of an organization called New America wrote an article about this, which I'll link to in the show notes. And as she put it, a student looking at a 52% repayment rate would have no way of knowing whether that rate is good, bad, or ugly. She probably wouldn't know that a student where uh, barely half the students can pay down their loans fully three years out of college is actually the norm, though in reality thousands of schools have repayment rates lower than that. So why do this? Why make the consumers work harder, especially when the outcome of this particular consumer choice is such a massive economic boom? Well, another thing that we've learned about DeVos is that she's perfectly happy to roll back Obama-era restrictions on for-profit colleges operating in the higher ed landscape, restrictions meant to force for-profit colleges to prove that the students they enroll are able to attain decent paying jobs for their investment. These were not capricious restrictions. They came from somewhere because these are colleges whose information on the scorecard looks absolutely terrible relative to national averages. As much as 96% of students at these places take out loans. They carry a heavier debt burden than those at nonprofit, private, and public four-year schools. And far more students who default on their student loans graduate from for-profit colleges. So the difference between the departments of education between Obama and Trump is clear. The former made the interests of regular people who don't have a lot of money and their education and socioeconomic advancement a priority, and the other doesn't. In fact, making it harder for them to advance, to crawl out of the red and into the black, 
So if you care about this stuff and it pisses you off, please go vote, guys. Make everyone you know register and vote so that we can get some modicum of sense back to our government and its policies so that more people can get a higher education and then vote to support policies that supported them in their quest to do so. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please share this episode and all the rest of them with your friends and family. Subscribe and listen to Eric's podcast, Swamped. Watch a lot of college signing day videos, cat videos, anything that can keep you buoyed these days, guys. As I told one of my students the day before he took the SAT, this too shall pass. Hang in there, everyone. Spread love. 